This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Fight Back with Libby Schneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. We've just learned about what appears to be a terrible case of elder abuse of a father by a son. A 51-year-old Toronto man is facing charges of criminal negligence causing bodily harm and failure to provide the necessaries of life after his 85-year-old father was found crumpled on the bedroom floor of their Scarborough home last week. Police say the son, who is the man's only caregiver, knowingly left his father on the floor for five days without food or water. The father remains in hospital on life support. Wow. What a terrible, terrible case. And it 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 means to me, uh, we've got to talk about this. And uh, it's probably been a while since we talked about it. I am here with Laura Tamlin-Watts, CARP's National Director of Law, Policy and Research. Hi, Laura. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Libby. Uh, you come with a lot of experience in this area. First of all, what, what's your reaction to this case? Well, it's a terrible situation. And one we're hearing more and more it's not that it's happening more and more. It's just that we're more aware of it. But what I can offer is for them to charge under those two charges, failure to provide the necessaries of life and, and uh, bodily harm, the situation must be very, very dire. Police don't usually go straight to those charges. What do they usually do? Often we're looking at issues that may involve a caution or they may try a peace bond. They try sort of soft ways of dealing with the issues of elder abuse if they deal with it at all. All too commonly, we know that police officers either don't have the training or the resources necessarily to intervene in cases of elder abuse. But cases like this go beyond simple theft or assault. Now, this is a situation where somebody has been left to die. And we have to call it what it is, which is really a terrible case of elder abuse. How prevalent is this? It's a terrific question. We did a study back in about 2015 on elder mistreatment across Canada, actually the largest study in the world on elder mistreatment. We found the prevalence was 8.2% of people in Canada, but it's actually more than that. What, 8.2% of our... Of what? Of older people have experienced elder abuse and neglect, but in the last year, not in their lifetime. And it only covered people who were in the community, not in long-term care, and it only covered people who were mentally capable of answering. So what we know is it's probably more like about one in eight older people are going to suffer some form of abuse and neglect in their life. Wow. And uh, that includes, uh, my understanding was that mostly it's financial abuse. And, and we've always said that financial abuse was the most prevalent form of elder abuse. What this study showed was slightly more prevalent was actually psychological and emotional abuse by just a little bit. But you're quite right. Financial abuse is a key component to that. What we also know is that elder abuse gets perpetrated in a number of different ways and often 
escalates. So we may start off by bullying and and demeaning people. We may move to taking their money, whether it be joint accounts or powers of attorney or or something else like that. And then if that doesn't work, or we need more incentives, maybe the person's starting to kind of fight back. We can move to physical assaults and even sexual assaults. So we can't just kind of parse it out. It often comes together. And how often is this perpetrated by family members? It's a terrific question. We know about two-thirds of all elder abuse is perpetrated by family members or those close friends that considered sort of family by extension. So this is often really a case of betrayal of trust in a relationship. Now, we know that some other forms of elder abuse can be by people who befriend an older adult. So that's in the one third. If you're looking at all of the ways that people's trust have been betrayed, you're really looking about a three quarters of all elder abuse is betraying a close trust with an older person. So it doesn't just have the physical effect or the financial effect. It shatters people's lives. Well, uh, we also know that that many cases, uh, the victim doesn't want to press charges, doesn't want to report it. it's shattering and, and it's also embarrassing. Hugely embarrassing. Stigma is an enormous part of that. It's particularly difficult when you know, you're being asked to press charges against your own son. Turning to this particular case, the, the younger person, the person who was the abuser or the alleged abuser in this particular case, I should say more correctly, appears to be the only caregiver. And so it's the situation where the older person may be very vulnerable and or maybe trying to trade off. I get to stay in my own home as long as I have someone living here to take care of me so I don't have to go into long-term care. Maybe I'm willing to trade off living in an abusive situation in order not to have to move out of my home. People are making those decisions all the time, and it's unacceptable. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, who knows, right? But um, is it ever a situation? I mean, is it possible that, that there's some kind of a mental illness on the part of the son or a very extreme example of, of burnout? Yeah, caregiver stress can be an important part. It's never an excuse for abuse, but it can play an important role in it. Um, we also really do have excellent information to say that Where we have cases often like failure to provide the necessaries of life, which are really profound neglect cases, in order to get charged under that, we're talking about terrible situations, open wounds, people being left to freeze, festering. Like These are um, terrible situations. It's not just somebody who didn't get dinner. It's very important to understand how bad it is. Well, being left on the floor without food or water for five days, I mean, I'm, I'm surprised that, that the man survived. I, I'm surprised, and I hope he does pull through, but I wouldn't be surprised to see whether or not this actually turns into a case with a more... Uh, even a more negative outcome to it. I wouldn't be surprised. But the piece about mental illness or some type of capacity challenge of the person who's supposed to be providing care Mm -hmm. can be quite common. And we see a number of really high-profile cases where it's really a failure of the system. Now, we're not saying that in this case. We don't know. But there have been cases where people who have been left to themselves to try to sort things out can be in dependent situations. Often the younger person who may be the abuser may have dependencies on drugs or alcohol. They may have some type of a learning disability or mental capacity issue. So we don't know. But this is a terrible outcome for the older person. 
Okay, uh, let's take a couple of calls. Gail in Mississauga. Hello, Gail. Yes, good morning. Thanks, Libby, for taking my call. You're very welcome. It is the afternoon, though. Yes, I know. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> it is. Please go I ahead. I have a very, very sad story. My brother and his girlfriend um, took, when my mother started getting uh, her dementia, and uh, took her to the lawyer and got her to change their will. Uh, her will into their name. So with that, which eliminated me from her will, which the house was supposed to be between me and my brother. So what happened was my brother turned around and sold the house, but promised my mom she could stay in there till the day she passed away. But he kept, uh, because she lived in Campbellford and my brother lived in Coburg. And what happened was my brother, my mom, when she needed anything out of her freezer, she'd call my brother because I was working at the time. And she'd call my brother and ask my brother to help her. And my, she had to pay my brother $25 for gas money to go there. So we, um, my brother, my mom would tell me that my brother was doing these things to her. And I couldn't understand why. And he would sneak in the basement window and try and make her have a heart attack. So... What happened was I wound up retiring from work, and then my girlfriend and I did a lot of investigation, and we found out how the will had been changed and everything. So what we did is we took my brother to court, and we wasted $25,000 on lawyers and got nothing. My brother still got the house because he'd already sold it and bought everything, and he bought a cottage. His girlfriend bought, he bought a boat, his girlfriend bought a cottage, and then two years later they separated. Uh, Gail, thank you so much for sharing your story. I'm going to get, uh, let Laura um, make some comments on it. I really, really appreciate it and very sorry to hear that. Thanks well, thank for your you. call. Gail, that's a terrible story and, and one that uh, unfortunately we see too often where we have situations happening between family and you can see that there is often really no good response unless we can prevent the thing from happening. I, I really heard you when you said you had to go through a number of different issues, try to work with the family, try to hire lawyers. Costing tens of thousands of dollars is not an unusual situation, and sometimes in the end there's nothing left. So it's And a, there's a, nothing to be done. I mean, in fact, um, I, I know that when we went through with my mother-in-law uh, had Alzheimer's, there are lots of steps in capacity and even if you've been diagnosed with dementia, the, you, you, there's, there are points when you can still make changes to your will. And I don't know how closely they correspond to actual capacity. It's an important point. You know, when you're making a will, you really only need to have capacity to understand and appreciate what you're doing at two points. The point where you give the instructions and the point where you sign the will. Sometimes those can be very close together. And, you know, capacity is a legal determination. It's not a medical determination. So quite right, you may have a diagnosis of something like dementia, which of course uh, has a neural capacity component to it, but it doesn't mean that you can't necessarily understand and appreciate what you're doing. We do, however, need people with much better training in assessing whether or not a person really does understand and appreciate. Lawyers are going to have to do a lot more work in getting better at doing that. Okay. Uh, we have to take a quick break. We're going to be back with more of your calls and more from Laura on this uh, very informative conversation about a terrible issue. Elder abuse. We'll be right back. 
Fight Back with Libby Zneimer on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Uh, we are talking about that terrible case of elder abuse that we uh, heard about today. I'm with Laura Tamblin Watts, who is with CARP and has a lot of expertise in this issue. We're going to take a call from Mary. And Mary, we have very little time left. Hi. Hello? Yes. You're oh, on hi. the air. We have very little time, though. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I'll just tell you, um, my um, two brothers took over a family business of my dad's when he passed, and my mom was the sole beneficiary, but they uh, took all the money. Instead of letting her get the dividends, they took it for them and their wives. And my mom spent about $600,000 with lawyers oh trying, yeah, trying to get, um, trying to actually shut them down. And it's still not over, but she's, you know, over 600000 in the hole. And uh, her two sons. It's just awful. And it's still ongoing. And she has since developed Alzheimer's. Oh, dear. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. Um, uh, Thank you very much for telling us about it, Mary. And I I hope it does get resolved ultimately. Thank you so much. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. We have... uh, about a, less than a minute left. So just in terms of dealing with this stuff and, and you know, what if you don't have $600,000 to try to, yeah. I think what's really important here is to make sure that you have those important conversations with people that you trust. If you have people that you can trust, tell them what you would want and do try to write it down. If you can afford a lawyer, it's best to get that. But if you don't, if you can afford a lawyer, you can get powers of attorney kits and will kits online, not in the grocery store. Get the ones from the Ministry of Attorney General if you're in Ontario. Those are the real ones. But what's important is those conversations and to do the planning ahead of time. If you're alone, see if you can find a, a close friend or have some other relationships maybe within a faith community. Find a network of support. Okay. Uh, we are going to have to revisit this subject, obviously. Laura Tamblin-Watts, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you for having me. Okay. And uh, that's all the time we have for Fight Back for today. And we now break for traffic and news. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.